Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Father, in the name of Jesus and by your Holy Spirit, we make ourselves open available, awake, and alert to your presence. Lord, we ask that this time for us would be a special time, a sacred time, a time for worship and encouragement. And Jesus, we are asking that today, in this moment, that you would be that one thing that we desire above everything else. Jesus, be first and foremost, be present and preeminent, and be at the center of all that we do and say today. And Lord, may the meditation of our hearts and the words of my lips be pleasing in your sight. We pray together in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. And if you're watching online, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go ahead and type amen into the comment section, and that way you can press send whenever it's time to amen as we're, uh, as we're going along today. Well, we're in this series, as you know, Finding Jesus in Genesis, because after all, this is how Christians read the Bible. We read the Bible looking for Jesus because Jesus is all over the scriptures. Jesus himself says this in John chapter 5. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness to me. So we can look at scripture as one big story Right, And all stories have a main character, and the main character of Scripture is? Good answer, Charlie. By the way, if the preacher ever asks you a question, the answer is normally God, Jesus, or Bible. So if you're asked those questions, if you say one of those, you got a 50-50 chance of getting it right. Scripture is this big story, and the main character is Jesus. The main point is Jesus. The reason that we read and we teach and we preach from the sacred book is we want to see Jesus and know Jesus and worship Jesus and follow Jesus. So one of the ways to look at Scripture, uh, you can see it almost as this, 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 this grand narrative, this really big story. It's almost like a five-act play. And you can see those five acts as, as creation, corruption, covenant, Christ. He gets his own part, but then again, Jesus is the main character of the whole thing. And then new creation. This is the story that scripture tells. It's taking us from creation to new creation. And in this series, we've been taking time in Genesis, of course, looking for Jesus. But in Genesis, we see the very first three acts of this five-act story. It's all in Genesis, the very first three acts. Of course, Genesis 1 and 2 tell the story of creation how God created and how everything was good. Everything was good in all of creation except for man to be alone because a man alone is not a good thing. It would be one ugly planet if it was only men. But God creates humanity, male and female, and everything is good. That's Genesis 1 and 2. 
And then by Genesis 3 begins the next act. It's the story of corruption. And from Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, it's corruption. It's the Adam and Eve falling story. It's Cain and Abel. It's Noah and the flood. It's the Tower of Babel. God puts his image on people And people make a mess of things. It's the story of corruption all the way up to Genesis 11. And then Act 3. The Bible's a big book, but here we are. Act 3 starts in Genesis chapter 12 when God forms a covenant with Abraham. This is how God chooses to bring a solution to the problem of corruption. It's through covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And so last week, Pastor Brian led us through the Abraham story, looking for Jesus. This morning, I want to tell the story of Abraham's son, Isaac. And so we'll be finding Jesus in Genesis today by looking at the story of Isaac. Let's pick up the story in Genesis chapter 17, and I'll pick it up in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. This is often what God does when God enters into a covenant, when God enters into a relationship. He changes people's names. So it was Abram, he becomes Abraham, Sarai, Abraham's wife becomes Sarah. I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So this story of covenant is not only the story of a covenant God is making with Abraham, but Abraham and Sarah. She is to be the mother of kings of the people. Then Abraham, in all of his spiritual maturity, fell on his face and laughed. And said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after me. Covenant is the way that God has chosen to bring a remedy, to bring a solution to the problem of corruption. God could have chosen to save the world any way that God wants to. God can do what God wants, but God chooses to enter into a creation where his people have gone wild and made a mess of things. He has chosen, chosen to rescue that good creation by working with God's people, by entering into a covenant with them. A covenant in the ancient world was a, was a lasting and binding agreement between two tribes, between two nations, where they would come together and pledge for life to work for the benefit of the other, to serve the other, to protect the other. And this was a, a lasting and, and binding relationship. It's much stronger and deeper and richer than the mere contracts that we have in the modern world. This was a a binding agreement and it was the way 
that God chose to rescue and save his good creation. You can think about it like this. As God creates and God sees that everything is good and then everything goes horribly wrong, God chooses not to stand far away and aloof, but God chooses to enter into creation and to work with humanity to bring God's saving plan and that working together with humanity we can call covenant. And so Abraham and Sarah enter into a covenant with God, and it was through Abraham and Sarah that God says, I'm blessing you so that you can bless all the families of the earth. And this was a covenant that comes with a promise. The promise is that Abraham would be the father of nations. And that Sarah, she would be the mother of kings. The promise would be that they would have children. But as so often in these stories in scripture, there's a, there's a plot twist because there's a problem. The problem is that Abraham and Sarah are old and old people don't have babies. Please don't ask me to go into the bio biology and explain it to you. But old people don't have babies. This is a problem. Now, children in the ancient world were considered a blessing. And so a part of God blessing Abraham and Sarah was to, to gift them children. Children are a blessing. We know that in our own collection of Psalms. In Psalm 127, it says, Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Make note of that, parents, when, you're, when your kids start acting the fool, when they start acting up. Come over here, you, you, you gift from God. Sometimes, parents, it needs to just be your mantra. Children are a gift. 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 It was seen as a blessing from God, not only for Israel, in the relationship they had with their God, but all throughout the ancient world, that children were a gift, that children were a blessing. And so Abraham and Sarah have this, this covenant with a promise that they would have a child, even though they were old in age. And of course, Isaac is that child with a promise. So where do we find Jesus? Again, that's what we're doing in the Isaac story. Where do we find Jesus? Well, Isaac is the son of promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. So right there at the beginning, when Abraham and Sarah are promised a son, that's when we begin to see Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. Because, of course, God keeps his promises. God's a promise keeper. Right? We've been singing that song. He's a way maker, right? miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. Oh my God, that is who you are. We've been singing that song because it's true that the God that we worship, the God revealed in Jesus, is a God who keeps his promises and fulfills all of those promises in and through Jesus. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Somebody say amen. Somebody type amen. 
Jesus is the amen to all of the promises of God. This covenant working God and this covenant keeping God has fulfilled all of these promises in Jesus. So as we consider the big story of scripture, we can say that what God began in Abraham with that covenant, God continued and brought through to completion in Jesus. So that when we look at Jesus, we know that God is a promise keeper because in Jesus, God keeps all of his promises, always. Now, of course, you know by experience that while God keeps all of his promises, God keeps his promises in his time and not always ours. So when it comes to leaning into the promises of God, it requires for us to exercise that P word, patience. Just a little patience. That's why we give ourselves and devote ourselves to prayer. The gift of prayer is a way for our hearts to be formed in patience to wait on God. Because while God came to us in Jesus, we believe that Jesus is coming again to set right everything that is wrong and bring to fulfillment God's new creation project. Jesus is still coming. And so until that time, we wait in hope. We wait on God. So Isaac first is the son of promise. That's where we find Jesus. But Isaac is also the son of laughter. And you know, in the story, it's not only Abraham who laughs, but Sarah laughs too. Let's pick up the Isaac story now in Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 2. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Abraham, when he hears that they're going to have a child, laughs. And Sarah, when she hears the same news, she can do nothing but laugh. Isaac, the very name Isaac, it means laughter. So everywhere Isaac went, when they called his name, they're calling out laughter. And Sarah knew that people would laugh along with her because old people, you know, typically don't have babies. Laughter, my friends, is a gift from God. You know, not every day is a day for lament. Some days are days for laughter. Certainly there is plenty to lament in our world. And I understand that there's times that we have to lament in our own lives. But God has not given us over to perpetual lament. We enter into lament that God might turn our mourning into dancing that we may experience joy once again. Laughter is, laughter does the heart good like medicine because laughter is a gift from God. 
And, and again, to pause for just a moment, the, the story of two old people having a baby is funny, and so it's okay to laugh at that. There's, there's humor built into this story. You can, you can see that because normally when, when people are old and gray, if they're carrying around a baby, people think, well, that's their grandchild. Unless you gray early like I did, and you walk into a restaurant with your children and they give you the senior citizen discount without asking, even if you're 46 years old. Sometimes that happens. That happened to me, that's a true story, that happened. Senior citizen discount. I'm fine with it. I, I man, I'm, I'm graying, I'm graying. I started graying early and I'm going gray in style, man. Bring on the discounts. Laughter indeed is a gift from God. And the story of Isaac, wherever he goes, he bears that name, laughter. So where do we see Jesus? Well, Isaac is the son of laughter. Jesus is the bringer of joy. Where do we see Jesus in the Isaac story? We see it right up front in Isaac's name. Because Jesus said, these words that I speak to you, and Jesus did a lot. He was building a community. He was, he was blessing children. He was healing the sick. But he also was preaching and teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, this is in John 15. Jesus says, the words that I speak to you, I'm speaking them that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be made full. Jesus not only leads us into the way of life, Jesus leads us in the way of real, lasting joy. Jesus is the bringer of joy. Now, of course, the joy that we are talking about is not the momentary happiness we get from entertainment, though I'm fine with that. When the Chiefs score four touchdowns in the first half today, I will feel joy and happiness. But the joy that Jesus brings is not that momentary, temporary kind of joy. It's not a joy or happiness that is rooted in our happenings that are happening to us. Rather, the joy that Jesus brings is a bright, glowing kind of joy that starts deep within our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's the kind of joy that overwhelms when things in our lives, when our happenings are not bringing us happiness. And if there was ever a time to cultivate the spirit of joy, brothers and sisters, it is today. Because there is a lot in our world that is rightly so bringing us down. I mean, with a global pandemic, with a hostile and divided political election season, with the resurfacing of racial inequality and pending economic uncertainty, there's just a lot of gloom and doom in our world. And Christians, it's easy for us to come under the sway of that doom, of that gloom, of that despair, but Christians from the very beginning have always been out of sync with the world because we find joy 
not only in the things that surround us in God's good world, but we experience the joy that Jesus brings. When he says the words that I speak to you, And when Jesus speaks to us, we can trust him, knowing that the words that Jesus speaks to us is for our own good. If we will submit to them, if we will obey them, if we will follow them, they will lead us to that place where our joy can be made full. But we will find ourselves out of sync with the world. And so while others are falling into despair, we find a hope and a joy that Jesus brings. And it's what we need in this hour. It's what we need. Because I I don't know exactly how it works. I just know it to be true that the overflow of joy is hope. Joy has the ability to wash darkness and despair away and produce within us a new hope. When we're experiencing joy, the overflow there is hope. And, and I understand hope is fragile right now. In this cultural moment that we are in, hope is fragile. I mean, let's be honest. This global pandemic feels like it's never going to end. And so it's right to feel that. It's right to ask, God, when is this ever going to end? You know, this is not the very first time that Christians, that the church has endured and lived through global epidemics. In the middle of the third century in the Roman Empire, in the middle 200s, there was an outbreak of the plague that lasted for 15 years. Historians now call it Cyprian's Plague, named after St. Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, an early church leader. Not so much because Cyprian had anything to do with the plague, but he, he wrote a treatise to the church to encourage the church through the epidemic. And in it, he documents some of the symptoms people were experiencing during this 15-year-long plague. And, and so historians have tagged that plague with Cyprian's name. And this plague was awful. Historians estimate that 5,000 people were dying every day. By the end of Cyprian's plague, one-third to one-quarter of the entire Roman Empire was wiped out. And yet, historians also note that during this time, the church not only survived, but thrived. The church continued to grow, to multiply its disciple-making because Christians living during Cyprian's plague had answers that the, that the Roman Empire didn't have. And the, and the answers that early Christians had, they weren't the simplistic, trite kind of answers like, well, bad things happen to bad people. You must be bad, so this is why it's happening. I mean, that line's been repeated over and over and over. The answers that those Christians had in the middle of the third century was expressed in the way they lived their lives. Because during that time, they lived lives of unmistakable joy. Because those early Christians living in the, in the third century, they believed I mean, really believed and lived out a true contempt for death. They had no fear of death because they believed that Jesus had defeated death. And they simply lived that out with this contempt for death, with this unmistakable joy that was birthed in them by the Holy Spirit. 
Even though many of them were poor, even though many of them were experiencing death from the very plague, they had a lasting, stable joy. And as they simply lived their life, loving God and loving their neighbors, even tending to and caring for sick among their own families and even among pagan non-Christian families. As they lived out that love, they lived out a real, true, meaningful life. And the pagan world, the pagan world took notice. The pagan world was looking saying, what is different about these people, these followers of Jesus Because while we're seeing people in the depths of despair, they have an unending joy. And so we can learn. We can learn from these Christians. We can model our lives after St. Cyprian and others who lived and simply during this time continue steadfast in the ways of Jesus and believe that God the Holy Spirit is going to put within us the same joy that God put in them because it's the same church and the same Holy Spirit. That we can continue to live meaningful lives defined by love, lives of unmistakable joy, And I believe that we will continue not only to survive during this time, but we too will thrive. Again, as the people of God, we're often out of sync with the world, but we need to, in this moment, begin to cultivate a true spirit of joy. We believe the Holy Spirit is at work in us and through us in our gathering, producing the fruit of you know, love and joy and peace and patience and all the fruit of the Spirit. And I think it's our responsibility to, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and cultivate a spirit of joy. How can we do that? Let me give you some quick things, rapid fire. Here's some things I think that we can do. We cultivate joy first by gratitude. That is by thanking God for all the blessings in this life. Gratitude is one of the ways that we cultivate joy because we're looking at what we have, not at what we don't have. We cultivate joy by believing the best in people and rejecting cynicism, especially when we're on social media. We cultivate joy by prayer, by drawing near to God who is near to us, by leaning into the Holy Spirit and allowing the Holy Spirit to wash waves of joy over us. This happens in prayer. We cultivate joy by forgiveness, letting go of the hurt of the past and walking in mercy and forgiveness. We cultivate joy by loving God and loving neighbor And we cultivate joy by trusting in the God who raised Jesus up from the dead. We cultivate resurrection joy in knowing that the God who raised Jesus up from the dead can raise us up from the deadness of 2020. We put our trust in God. It's our trust in God that fuels and cultivates our joy. If I could be so bold, it's not by putting our trust in politicians, but putting our trust in the God revealed in Jesus as cruciform love. The God who raised up Jesus from the dead, I believe is raising us out of the deadness of 2020. And that is our source of hope and joy. So we see that Isaac, he's the 
son of promise. We see that Isaac is the son of laughter. We find Jesus no clearer in the story of Isaac than when we see Isaac as the son of sacrifice. That is when we look into the story where Abraham takes his son Isaac up on the Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. Let me tell you the story and then we'll look at a few of the scriptures in Genesis 22. This perhaps in all of Isaac's life is the most famous story of Isaac. And the story goes something like this. God speaks to Abraham, says, Abraham. Abraham says, yeah, God, what's up? And God said, Abraham, do you love me? And Abraham's like, well, of course. And God's like, there's something I want you to do. And he's like, I'm all ears, God. What do you want me to do? God's like, you know that son of yours, that son that you love, laughter. And, I, and Abraham just sits back. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's my boy. Yeah, yeah. God says, well, yeah, about him. Well, uh, I want you to take him up onto a mountaintop. And Abraham says, yeah, I can do that. And there I want you to sacrifice him to me. Abraham's like, whoa, hold on a second here. Let's back this thing up. You want me to do what? And God's like, yes, I want you to take your son Isaac up onto a mountain, Mount Moriah. There I want you to sacrifice him to me. So Abraham loads up the donkeys. He loads up his son, loads up bundles of wood, a way to make a little fire. And they take a three-day journey to Mount Moriah. And then they come to the spot where Abraham is to build an altar and there sacrifice his son. We pick up the story here in Genesis chapter 22. We pick it up verse 7. Once they get to that spot, Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering?" It's a legit question. I mean, Isaac's been around. He's a child here, but he's been around. He knows how this works. When it's sacrifice time, you get the wood, you kindle a little fire, you take an animal, slaughter that animal. This is a blood sacrifice. You slaughter that animal on the altar, you light it on fire, offering time. So he asks, okay, we got the wood, we got the fire. Where is the lamb? Notice the question from Isaac. Where is the lamb? Verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. See, God won't be killing the lamb, but God's going to provide the lamb. Where is the lamb is what we've been asking all morning long in the story of Isaac. Where is the lamb? And Abraham says, God won't be killing this sacrifice, but God will certainly provide for us the lamb. So Abraham constructs this wooden altar, lays his son on top of it, grabs the dagger from its sheath, And holds it up over his son, the son of promise, the son of laughter. Holds that knife above his son. And moments before Abraham is plunging that knife down, an angel speaks from heaven. Yo, Abraham, hold up. And Abraham's like, whoa. And he puts that sheath back in there. 
Verse 12, the angel says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. There was a substitution. Isaac is the son of sacrifice because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. But in that moment, Abraham realizes that this is not what God wants. God does not want human sacrifice. That's not the way. God doesn't want Abraham killing his son. That's not the way that God operates, but God does provide the sacrifice. God does provide the lamb. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place there up on Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Here's where we see Jesus. Isaac is the son of sacrifice. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaac is asking, where is the lamb? And for Christians, we look at the cross and we say, there is the lamb that God has provided. Jesus is the sacrifice provided by God. Jesus is the ram caught in the thicket. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins that takes away our sin. Remember John the Baptist, who Jesus says, since there have been kids born of women, none's greater than John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says of Jesus, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where's the lamb, Isaac asks. It's walking down a dusty road towards the river, river Jordan that Jesus might be baptized in solidarity with broken humanity. That then Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, could show us the heart of the Father, show us the way to life, show us a life of meaning and hope. And then ultimately Jesus becomes the sacrifice by taking the sin of the world upon him, dying on the cross, taking sin into death, leaving it there so it could be removed from us so that we can live new lives free from the corruption of the past. And that's the hope of the Christian message is that life does not have to stay the same. Your life does not have to stay the same. You don't have to have the baggage from the past still clinging on to you because of the blood of Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice takes that away. And so gathered here on Sunday morning, we come to the table to celebrate Holy Communion, to celebrate that good news that we no longer have to be tripped up by the sickness of sin anymore, that we can have even right now, even today, a brand new start in our life, in the trajectory of our life. And that new start it begins by acknowledging that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is Lord. In its most simple, compact way, the central Christian message is Jesus is Lord. 
He is the Lord who saves, not by killing his enemies, but by being killed. And as Jesus takes away our sin, we can begin a brand new life. And so as we celebrate communion this morning, this is your way to put, to put some action to your faith. Because if you are looking, perhaps you've only been exploring the Christian faith. Perhaps you've been checking us out and checking Jesus out and you're not so sure about this whole Jesus thing. This morning can be your opportunity to put trust in Jesus. In just a moment, we are going to pray a prayer together, our prayer of confession. And when we pray this, we are praying and acknowledging our own brokenness. We're acknowledging that we haven't done right. And we're all praying this together, whether it's your first time or you've prayed this prayer dozens of times. But if you want, if you're serious about following Jesus and you want to take that next step of faith, here it is. We'll provide the words of the prayer. You supply the meaning. We'll pray this together and you can begin a new life with Jesus. And wherever you are this week, this can be a renewal of the covenant, a renewal of your relationship with God as we celebrate Holy Communion. Stand up with me and grab your communion elements, have them near. And let's together offer this prayer of confession. Again, we'll provide the words for you. They'll be on the screen. Some of you who have been here for a while, perhaps you've committed it to memory. But let's not recite the words simply to give voice to them. But let me encourage you that, that this prayer of confession flows from your hearts. That this is our moment where we all together recognize that we're all a part of the problem. And our one simple solution is Jesus. So church, join me and let's offer this prayer of confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all those who confess their sins and in humility repent and turn to him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your sins are forgiven. And now this is the table not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. It is the Lord's will that those who want him should meet him here.